Okie doke. Um, so, what we were talking about yesterday um, was the fairy tale um, feel of the opening of King Lear, and in particular that aspect of fairy tales, which some people think um, belong to all fairy tales, and it would depend on how you interpret stuff. But that aspect of fairy tales, which consists of passing a te- which consists in passing a test, um, where um, the test is um, whether you will behave contrary to um, what seems to be in your own best interests, um, whether you will understand um, the meaning of the test or why you should be submitted to such a test at all. Um, that's one very common way um, to set up tests in fairy tales. The other very common way, although it's less common, is for the um, test giver um, to be given the te- giving the test because he or she wants you to fail. Rumpelstiltskin would be an example of that. That is, Rumpelstiltskin um, gives a test to the um, daughter um, become mother um, because he imagines that she will fail it. Um, but the idea of a test is arguably part of all fairy tales. And in a, in a um, more subtle or maybe a less subtle way, because fairy tales are pretty subtle, um, it may be arguably a part of all literature. Shakespeare, however, in King Lear is definitely giving, um, beginning the play with a fairy tale type test. Um, his sources didn't. There was a reason um, in the uh, sources where Shakespeare got the story from uh, for the test that Lear is giving Cordelia and giving the other daughters. Shakespeare gets rid of that reason. It seems um, completely unmotivated. And um, the very fact that he gets rid of a reasonable reason for Lear to be engaged in this contest. Um, Lear has ulterior motives in his original engagement in the contest in um, the sources for King Lear, and Shakespeare didn't want him to have those motives. And that's a way of saying that he wanted that sort of fairy tale beginning. Um, and he seems to have wanted that fairy tale beginning because the fairy tale beginning um, shows that we're going into a different kind of world than the world of everyday human life and everyday human motivations. Um, yes, King Lear is, as many people insist and celebrate it, for being um, a play about real human interrelations, real human interactions about what happens when an older generation um, is aging and becoming um, unpredictable and irrational, but they still have power. Um, The letter that Edmund forges, um, which is supposed to be the letter um, forges for Edgar, that is, forges um, um, over Edgar's signature and um, gives to their father, um, is a letter which complains about old age complains about um, how people who are old shouldn't have the power 
that they have when they can no longer enjoy it and when they can no longer use it rationally. That's what Lear's older daughters are also going to say about Lear himself, that he is an idle old man who still wants to manage what he's given away, who still thinks he's in control of stuff when he isn't. You guys are, you know, if you're normal human beings, you're already irritated with your parents or those, um, your guardians or those in loco parentis. Um, but think about the way they're irritated with their parents. You like your grandparents and you're sometimes surprised by the way your parents get into fights with them. But um, that's because um, they're starting to find their um, sense of parental authority um, to be um, misused or no longer quite appropriate or no longer quite rational. And that's what people say about King Lear, that it's, it's frequently done um, as an exposition of dealing with very aged um, um, family members um, and having to care for the oldest generation. Um, that being said, the important part is that we're entering a new world and that world is not a normal world. Um, in a way, what Shakespeare is saying is this non-normal world is part of our normal world. That entering into this fairy tale world, that's something that happens to people as they get older, it's something that happens to people as the life you once counted on changes. Lear has counted on Cordelia, um, but complains that he can't count on her. But Cordelia has also counted on Lear, and now she can no longer count on him. She can no longer count on him as she achieves adulthood. That is, as she becomes an adult, as she's about to marry, there's a sense in which her trust that his love for her will be unconditional. And that's clearly a trust she did have. Um, and it was clearly right for her to trust in his unconditional love. Um, that trust no longer is well placed. What, if you think about this again in terms of tests, um, there's one other test that we didn't really talk about in Act One, which is the test that Cordelia sets Lear. Um, Lear clearly sets Cordelia test. That's the obvious one that's flagged, that's underlined, that's emphasized. Um, it's a test, as we said yesterday, that um, Lear thinks Cordelia has failed, but that France and Kent think Cordelia has passed. Um, so that's really interesting, that failure from one perspective is actually passing with flying colors from another perspective. Um, it's also, and this is part of Shakespeare's, and here I'm, I'm just summarizing yesterday, this is part of Shakespeare's um, amazing ability to, be, to concentrate um, his events, to be concise in his exposition. It's also a test um, of France and of Burgundy, and it's a test that Burgundy fails, but that France passes. Um, but there's also yet one more test, and that's Cordelia's test of her father. Um, she doesn't quite mean to be testing him because she simply assumes that it's obvious that he'll pass. On the other hand, he assumes that it's obvious that she'll pass. And that test is whether she can tell him the truth, that she knows that she loves him. She assumes that he'll understand 
that she loves him. She'll assume that um, for him to pass the test will be a test, it's a test of whether he prefers flattery or love. Um, what Regan and Goneril say to their father is pure flattery. What Cordelia says is the truth, and the truth is that she loves him. Um, she says that he has half her love, and he really does have half her love, whereas he has none of Regan's and Goneril's love. Um, so that's a test that Lear fails, but the person who pays for that failure first is Cordelia. The person who pays for that failure second is Lear himself, who is now relying on people who don't love him. Um, and the other persons who will pay for that failure are all the other people that Lear's um, wreck, that Lear's um, disaster will draw in his wake. But if you think about, and it's always useful to think about how you would act this, um, how you would direct this, how you would perform it. Um, Lear and Cordelia misunderstand what's going on. And in particular, what they misunderstand is the mo motivation the other has. It's obvious that Lear misunderstands Cordelia. And um, that tempts people to think that Cordelia is a purely good character. Um, and an infallible character. She is a purely good character on, for many values of purely good, but also an infallible character. Um, but she isn't. What she thinks, and I think if you were directing it or acting it or analyzing it, um, you would need to see this. What she thinks is that her father has believed her sisters. What she thinks is that her father has accepted the absurd flatteries that everyone else knows to be absurd, um, but that Lear really thinks that Goneril loves him more than words can wield the matter, dearer than eyesight, space, and liberty. All crucial words for what happens later in the play, of course. If you like eyesight, then it's important not to be Gloucester. Um, if you like space and liberty, it's probably important not to be Lear and not to be Edgar. Um, but she says um, what is essentially just standard flattery. Cordelia believes that Lear believes Goneril, and that's wrong. Lear doesn't. What Lear is trying to do is be fair to the older daughters he doesn't really love. And what he's trying to do is give them a chance, officially, to draw the most opulent third of the kingdom. Um, but that's only so that he can finally turn to Cordelia, who he knows will tell the truth to him, but whose truth he thinks will be, yes, I love you more than anything. And Cordelia... Her test, as we've said before, her test is to think that Lear will accept um, her true telling of how much she loves him. We know that Lear used to be more rational, even though Goneril and Regan agree that he hath ever but slenderly known himself. That is, there's always been a way that Lear's um, absolute power has um, protected him, insulated him, as absolute power tends to do, um, from knowing um, the stuff that he's doing wrong. 
from understanding his own weaknesses and foibles. Nevertheless, what we know from many, many, many hints that Shakespeare drops in the play that you're not supposed to say, oh, now I get it, it's just these hints add up, is that he loved Cordelia best, which was right, he should have loved Cordelia best. Um, that he liked Edgar, that Edgar was his godson, that he preferred Albany to Cornwall, that he preferred France to Burgundy. Um, all of these are indications that Lear's judgment used to be good and that therefore his love for Cordelia, his youngest, his last, not least, um, that his love for Cordelia um, was something she was entitled to think of as unconditional. And the shock is that it's not unconditional. Um, that's a shock to her, um, and that's Lear's failing the test, but failing a test that he used to pass. And that's the first good thing we know about Lear. We then go into the other plot, um, the Edgar Edmund Gloucester plot. And again, the important thing to know about that plot, which, as I say, Shakespeare took from a completely different source, um, are the ways that it parallels, but also the ways that it doesn't parallel the Lear plot. Um, so given that. Um, there's a new Star Trek out, and they made the joke about how many parsecs of speed um, that Han, you guys all know about that, that parsec is a unit of uh, distance and not speed, but Han Solo yet again treated it as a unit of speed. Um, what a parsec is is a parallax second, and what a parallax second means is that um, it's a unit of distance that's defined. I can't believe I'm going into this for you, but <laughs> I am. It's a unit of distance that's defined that if you look at a star on, um, let's say, January 21st, and then you look at it again six months later, let's say July 21st, um, the Earth will be across a diameter of the um, of the ellipse that it makes around the sun, it'll be across the diameter. So it'll be about 190 million miles away from where it is now. Six months from now, the Earth will be about 190 million miles away from where we are right now. If you look at a star, and if the angle that we look at that star um, from is different by one second of arc, that is by a 60th of a minute, which is a 60th of a degree, which is a 360th of a circle. If the angle that you look at the star at when, we're, when we've gone down a, uh, the base of a triangle that's about 190 million miles, if that angle changes by one second of arc, that star is defined as a parallax second distance from us, or a parsec. So this very, very, very tiny distance and angle defines through trigonometry um, how far away um, the altitude of that triangle from the star to the Earth now and to the Earth um, six months from now. If that angle is only one second, not even a degree, but one three thousand six hundredth of a degree, then that star is a parsec away. So it's a good long distance, a parsec. Um, several light years. The reason I bring it up is interesting, huh? Okay. Um, the reason I bring it up is the idea of parallax is near parallel but not parallel. The idea of parallax is it's you take something that is close to being parallel, 
but not quite parallel, and the parallels but not quite parallels allow you to see in three dimensions. It's the principle of stereoscopic vision also. We have two eyes because our eyes look at things from slightly different angles. That is, we look at things not in parallel, but in parallax, and that's how we have depth perception. Shakespeare uses that, and many, many writers use that, um, in order to bring out not only similarities, but the similarities are the background against which differences, crucial important differences, will stand out. So the difference between the Gloucester story and the Lear story stands out because of their similarities. Um, the similarities also stand out um, because of the differences. One way you can put this, as we'll see, is that, or as we'll see in about um, one second when I continue this sentence, is that Kent says to Lear when Lear says, out of my sight, a word that Lear may have gotten from Goneril saying, I love you dearer than eyesight, Lear says to Kent, out of my sight, um, and Kent says, see better, Lear. And what we're seeing is a kind of blindness within Lear to the truth. Lear's metaphorical blindness, his inability to see clearly, will become literal blindness in his parallactic counterpart in Gloucester, when Gloucester's eyes are gouged out at the end of Act Three. So stuff that happens to Lear figuratively happens literally to Gloucester. And that interplay between the symbolic or the figurative or the metaphorical and the literal is something that having those two plots go together allows Shakespeare to do. Another example is we started talking yesterday about the fool, um, the amazing character of the fool. The fool is, disappears from the play, um, whither no man wist, to quote Spencer, the fool disappears from the play um, in Act Three, at the end of, near the end of Act Three. He's mentioned one more time. Anyone remember where? Do you know what happens to him? So Lear comes in in Act Five. Is your hand up? Okay, he may have gotten lost in the storm. His last line is, um, he says, um, uh, his last line is, and I'll go to bed at noon. Lear says, I'll have my supper in the morning, and the fool says, and I'll go to bed at noon, and then we don't see him again. Um, Lear reappears in Act 4 to Gloucester and Edgar, but the fool is gone. Um, and we, see, we don't see him any longer. At the very end of the play, Lear comes in with a dead Cordelia, in his arms, and he's talking about how terribly things have ended up. And he says, as an, as an aside, and my poor fool is hanged. And um, most footnotes will tell you fool there is a term of endearment for Cordelia. They have no reason to say that. That is, someone decided that in the 18th century because why would he care about the fool? And then, for some reason, readers of Shakespeare after that just thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, to me, it totally doesn't. 
Uh, the Fool is a really important character. And when Shakespeare says, and my poor fool is hanged, it's unlikely that he's talking primarily about Cordelia. Um, he probably, however, it's not entirely wrong to see a parallax between the fool and Cordelia again, that parallax being that the fool appears after Cordelia is exiled. Lear calls for the fool, and all we know about him is what Lear's gentleman says, which is, Lear says, where's my fool? I've not seen him the, these three days. And the gentleman says, since my young lady's going into France, the fool hath much pined away. So Cordelia's exile has affected the fool, has made him pine away. Cordelia returns in Act 4, but the fool doesn't get to see her because he's disappeared. So there is some connection between the fool and Cordelia. It is highly likely that the fool and Cordelia were played by the same actor. Um, and this is something, this is a general principle, not only in Shakespearean plays, but it's an important principle in Shakespearean plays, that parts are doubled, that Shakespeare writes parts so that they can be played by the same actor. This is often just a convenience. Um, that is, you can have more parts than, than you have actors in your company. Yeah? Is there any Yeah, so I think in Shakespeare, there's extreme significance to that fact. Um, that is not a, all of the parts that Shakespeare wrote to be doubled or significant. Um, you know, sometimes someone who is playing a lord in one scene will swell a progress, start a scene or two in another scene, and you won't even um, recognize them. But um, sometimes you're supposed to recognize them. Some of Shakespeare's actors were extremely famous. Um, if you um, go to blockbuster movies, even the latest Star Wars, but if you go to blockbuster movies, um, one reason that um, they tend to have lots of very famous actors in them, even though those famous actors are expensive. If you take a movie like The Hateful Eight, for example, um, has a lot of famous actors in it. It's not only Quentin Tarantino, yay. It's also that if you're doing a Quentin Tarantino-style movie, you want the audience to keep track of the characters. And it tends to be the case, this is just psychologically tested by Hollywood as well as by psych departments, that you can't really easily keep track of more than about seven characters at the outside, seven new characters in a movie. Um, to keep track of seven different new characters, that's a hard thing to do. You're going to start confusing them. You're going to, it's the kind of thing that if you go with um, King Lear, he's going to say, wait a second, that person with the curly hair, was he the one who was at the bank robbery or was, and you know how you're always explaining things but you don't even know. Um, so what happens in blockbuster movies and Shakespeare's principle was the same, is that you use actors that, who are themselves famous. That is, you know it's Brad Pitt, or you know it's SLJ, or you know who, who it is, and so you don't have to figure out who's who because, oh yeah, there's Brad Pitt. Um, and when, um, and that's just a principle of theatrical and cinematic exposition that you make things a whole lot easier on an audience if you use actors they know. 
Shakespeare's actors were very famous. Um, Shakespeare's, they even make jokes about them. Here's a joke from Hamlet, and I'll give you a, another version of a, of a joke from movies in a second that it's similar. The joke from Hamlet is that Hamlet is talking to Polonius, and Polonius says, um, I once played um, Caesar when I was an actor in university, you know, like you guys. Um, Brutus killed me, and Hamlet says, um, jokingly, "'Twas a brute part of him to kill so capital a calf as thou art." Um, the thing is, the actor playing Polonius had actually played Caesar in Julius Caesar, and the actor playing Hamlet had actually played Brutus in Julius Caesar, and later in Hamlet, spoiler, Hamlet is going to stab Polonius. So he's going to do it again. But the joke for the audience is, we saw this guy stab that guy already in Julius Caesar. They were recognizable. They were very famous. The fa Shakespeare's famous actors were very famous. Um, and Famous all over England, not only famous in London, famous all over England. And so when Shakespeare doubles a character... Part of it is you know that it's the same, it's a famous actor playing both roles. It, he's not trying, often, he's not trying to fool an audience into thinking that he has more actors than he does. He wants the audience to see, you know, like in The Wizard of Oz, that it is the same actor playing both roles. Or like um, Eddie Murphy doing all the roles in, um, what is it, Meet the Clumps? Where does he do all the roles? He does, I think he does in a couple of movies. He may do it in The Nutty Professor as well. Um, so that idea is one which Shakespeare takes the fact that this is how we keep track of characters by knowing who's acting them. Um, that's a useful fact for uh, for a director or a writer or a producer of a play to know that you can do that. And Shakespeare goes farther with it by making connections between characters by having the same actor play them. So he doesn't always do that. Sometimes he wants twins on stage, and the same actor will play each of the twins, and the twins will never be on stage together. Um, and then we're not supposed to think, oh, it's the same actor. We're supposed to think, oh, they're twins. But with The Fool and Cordelia, yes, the actor who most likely played them was extremely famous at the time, um, had one-man shows, went around doing one-man shows um, as well. Um, his name was Robert Arman, and um, he was wildly popular, and people would have recognized him as playing both roles. So that's a way that Shakespeare is setting up a parallel or parallax between The Fool and Cordelia is having one actor play both roles. Now, after The Fool disappears in Act 3, Edgar starts leading his father, Gloucester, who's been blinded, around. And he doesn't reveal himself to Gloucester. He doesn't say who he is. Um, he's given every opportunity to say who he is, but he doesn't say who he is. Um, he pretends first to still be Tom of Bedlam, the madman, and um, later he pretends to be other people. But what he says, what he explains to the audience about why he's doing this, or maybe explains to himself, because he's puzzled over the fact that his father is desperate to touch him again, even though he will never see him again. Oh, dear son Edgar, the food of thy 
abused father's wrath, says Gloucester. Might I but live to see thee in my touch, I'd say I had eyes again. All he wants to do is know that Edgar is alive and that he has touched him one more time before he, Gloucester, dies. And Edgar is right there, but he says, yeah, I'm poor man Tom. And then Edgar may not quite know why he's doing this, and he tries to explain it to himself, and he says that the reason I do trifle with his despair is done to cure it, but he also says of himself that it's a hard road to hoe. Bad is the trade, he says, that must play fool to sorrow. So his trade, what he's doing, what he sees his task as being in Act 4 and Act 5, or at least in Act 4, um, it's a little if you're in Act 5, is to play fool to sorrow. Now, what that means has to be something like what Lear has found in The Fool. Edgar is to Gloucester what the fool is to Lear. The fool disappears, but there's a kind of handoff, you could say, of that archetypal position in the play. The fool has been leading Lear around and telling, um, speaking truth to him and saying all these amazing things. And now that function or role in the play or that dyad or that connection um, is handed off to its parallax in Edgar and Gloucester. Edgar playing fool to Gloucester. Um, but then again, Edgar is like Cordelia in Parallax to Cordelia. The true son, the loving child, the one who has been wrongly cast out and hated and hunted down by a father who has believed the wrong son or the wrong daughters. Um, so Edgar is in Parallax to Lear's Fool and also in Parallax to Cordelia, and that's another way, if we now finish the triangle and do the whole parallax thing again and trigonometry, um, that means that, that Edgar is like Cordelia, and Edgar is like the fool, and Cordelia and the fool are played by the same actor, so that likeness appears on stage in Edgar. He is the son who plays the fool. He is the good child who plays the fool and appears off stage or half off stage in The Fool and Cordelia because they're different characters but the same actor. Um, so these are all ways that Shakespeare is doing not to repeat himself but to give you greater depth of field through looking at the similarities that bring out the differences looking at the differences that bring out the similarities. A difference that brings out a similarity, for example, is that both Edgar and Lear in the hovel, in the storm, see the other one as like himself. That is Lear in a wonderful moment, seeing Edgar as poor mad Tom, um, poor and broken by the storm and subdued to all of heaven's strokes, to quote, Lear says to him, didst thou give all to thy daughters, and art thou come to this? 
He has no daughters, Kent says. And Lear shakes his head and says, you're lying. Only someone who had given everything to his daughters could be in this bad condition. So that's obviously Lear's self-absorption. That is, um, no one has suffered as much as I, as I have. The only way you could possibly match me in suffering is if you made the same mistake that I did and gave all to your daughters, because that's the worst possible thing you can do with the worst possible consequences. Um, that's, that's what it says about Lear's character, but it's also drawing a parallax now not between child and child, not between Edgar and Cordelia, but interestingly between Edgar and Lear, and Edgar says something similar. He looks at Lear, and he can't believe the way Lear's daughters have forced him out into the storm. And his one-line remark is, he childed as I fathered. That is, his children are treating him the way my father is treating me. So once again, the fact that there's a generational difference is the difference that brings out the similarity, that, that Edgar thinks Gloucester has treated him the way Lear thinks Regan and Goneril have treated him. So all of those, that, that, that very complex interweaving of near parallels that are not quite parallels, that's what allows for interweaving, that's what allows for commentary, that's, um, that's what allows for insight um, by giving you different angles on the same thing or explicitly the same angle on different things. And Shakespeare is amazingly good at that. Okay, let's go now to the entry of The Fool which is um, Act 1, Scene 4. And um, what's happened here is yet another disguised character remaining loyal to his king has shown up, Kent, um, who's been banished but returns and um, returns in disguise. And here he has to tell us who he is, because when Kent returns in disguise, Lear's not supposed to recognize him, which means that he has to be sufficiently different that maybe we're not supposed to recognize him or not supposed to be sure that it's the same person. So he comes in at the beginning of Act 1, Scene 4, and says, um, now, if this disguise works, that would be great. Um, and then he addresses himself, now banished Kent, if thou canst serve where thou dost stand condemned, so may it come thy master, whom thou lovest, shall find thee full of labors. So Kent comes in, and Shakespeare makes sure we know that it's Kent, that he's shaved off his beard. Um, he explicitly says he shaved off his beard. He's raised his likeness. Um, and we still need to know that it is Kent. So Shakespeare tells us... Um, Lear meets Kent, and this is the first we've seen of Lear since Act 1, Scene 1. Now, there's a decent amount of time has passed um, in the theater, in reading, um, between the last that we saw Lear, which is that when he went storming out, leaving Cordelia and France and Goneril and Regan on stage, um, and Lear's return now that he's living in Goneril's house. What we know about Lear is that he's still irascible. 
um, that he struck one of Goneril's servants for chiding his fool. And Goneril is not happy about that. Um, so here we're, Shakespeare set up a very kind of interesting um, matrix for what's about to happen, which is Lear is still someone who, who has a towering temper, who loses his temper very easily. Um, he's a certain kind of um, angry father figure who's getting a little bit too old to be the angry father figure, but he's getting even angrier about that. On the other hand, the reason he struck the servant was because he chid the fool, because the servant treated the fool, who is the lowest and most dejected thing of fortune, that Lear treated the, that, I'm sorry, the servant treated the fool badly, um, and Lear defended the fool against one of Goneril's servants, and Goneril, whom we don't like, is angry about this, and so we start thinking, well, Goneril versus Lear, we're going to be on Lear's side. Um, again, it's like the current primaries. Given um, a choice among various evils, um, we're going to pick the lesser one. So we're, we're pissed off at Lear. He's done something stupid. It ended happily enough for Cordelia. And Kent is loyal to Lear. And these are things that we're starting to notice um, that Cordelia loved Lear, that Kent is loyal to Lear, and yet Lear is still um, a jerk. But Lear's been off stage enough now that that's not what's primar primarily in our mind. What's primarily in our mind is what Edmund is doing to his father and his brother. That's really pretty bad. And now here comes Lear again. Um, he and Kent have a little interaction in which Kent behaves like Kent, like an anonymous Kent, in which Kent speaks gruffly and plainly to Lear and doesn't flatter him at all, and Lear likes him. And that means that something, the very thing we hated most about his character at the beginning of the play, we're seeing a kind of reversion to what it is that Kent always liked about Lear and what Lear liked about Kent, which is that Kent is a plain-spoken and funny person. Um, Kent makes some, has some pretty funny lines that he's going to eat no fish, for example. Um, and then we also have some more talk about the fool. So we know that one of Goneril's servants has chid the fool. We know this has gotten Lear angry. We also know um, that Goneril has told her servants to start treating Lear rudely. Um, then Lear calls for the fool again. Um, and in the meantime, Goneril and Oswald are treating Lear badly. Um, and then finally, this is in Act 1, Scene 4, um, after Kent and Oswald have a little fight, which is going to um, matter later on in the play, um, Lear thanks him. Now, my friendly knave, he says, I thank thee. There's earnest of thy service. Earnest means <coughs> it's, it's a word for a tip or for um, symbolic money um, that nevertheless has some real 
value. And at that point, the fool comes in. And his first lines are, let me hire him too. So Lear is giving Kent money, and the fool says, let me hire him too. Here's my coxcomb. That is his jester's hat. So why? what's the fool's first joke? Why is he hiring Kent and paying him with his jester's cap? A question for you. Hannah. Yeah, that is, you're, you're following Lear? That's ridiculous. Um, here, you, wanna, you want payment in kind for, appropriate payment for what you're doing? Um, here, take my fool's cap, because you're a fool. Lear, now, to the fool, uses the same language as used towards Kent. How now, my pretty knave? How dost thou? And the fool keeps talking to Kent. You are best take my coxcomb. Why, my boy, says Lear, we won't go through everything the fool says, but it's all wonderful. But one thing that I want to point out is, with one exception, and it's a perfectly appropriate exception, with one exception, everyone else addresses the fool with the vocative fool. That is, everyone else sounds like Mr. T when they're talking to the fool. Um, but Lear always calls the fool something nice. My boy, my pretty knave, my lad. He doesn't call him fool. And this is the second step of the recuperation in our eyes of Lear. This is the second step of the very hard task Shakespeare has set himself, which is to make us care for Lear, make us sad, make us weep over what happens to Lear. At the end of Act 1, Scene 1, nothing could happen to Lear that um, uh, we would think was bad enough for what he's done. Um, but by the, end, by the end of the play, what we feel is what's happened to Lear is terrible. Um, his line is that I am a man more sinned against than sinning, that very, very, very stark reduction of his relation to the moral universe. I am a man more sinned against than sinning. Um, that's true. It turns out that he is. And that didn't seem possible at the end of Act 1, Scene 1. Um, but it turns out to be true. He's punished more than he deserves to be punished, far more than he deserves to be punished. And, um, but in order to convince us of that, Shakespeare has to start to make us like Lear, and he has to start to make us like Lear without interfering with our sense that it's the same character. Um, what he's not doing is turning Lear into a different person. Um, he's keeping Lear as the same person but he's showing us a more three-dimensional version of Lear. And the first place that he does it, or the major place that he does it, is in Lear's relation to the fool. Now remember, again, um, that um, we are looking at the parallax of the fool and Cordelia and go a little bit further in Act 1, Scene 4, 
Um, the fool says to Lear, Sarah, I'll teach thee a speech. Do people know what Sarah means? Isn't that just sir? It's not. It's the opposite of sir. That is, it's, um, it's a rank thing. Um, it's the kind of thing that you still have in Japanese. Um, it's a rank thing where you say sir to those who are of higher rank than you and Sarah to those of lower rank than you. Um, so when you say Sarah to someone, you're basically pulling rank on them. When you say sir, you're acknowledging their higher rank than you. In school, if you had gone to um, Brandeis at the time, you would be in a forest dense with ice and snow. Um, but if you'd gone to a British university or an English university at the time, um, you would um, say sir to your tutors and teachers who are all male, and they would say Sarah to you. That's one of the ways of um, sustaining the difference of, of um, ceremonious respect. So, and do people know the difference between you and thou in Shakespeare? It's the same as the difference between we and I, except in the second person. It still survives in Spanish and German and French. You is formal. And it's also what you say to those who are higher ranked than thou art. Um, you say you to those who are ranked higher than you. And um, you can, as a sign of respect, say you to those ranked lower than you. But generally, um, you would say thou to those ranked lower than you. So if you know modern French or modern Spanish or modern German or, or various other languages, um, this is a distinction that still exists. It's vous versus tu in French. Um, it's usted versus, um, versus tu in Spanish. It's um, du versus z in German, etc. So um, it's noticeable that the fool calls Lear Sarah the fool calls the king Sarah. No one else in the kingdom does that. Anyone else in the kingdom. It's a shocking thing to call the king, but the fool is all licensed. That's what it means to be licensed. The fool can do anything. He calls Lear Sarah, and he says thou to Lear. Everyone else says you. He says thou. Sarah, I'll teach thee a speech. Do, says Lear. Mark it, uncle. And then he does a little bit of doggerel that makes sense if you pay attention to it, but doesn't make sense if you don't. Kent says, this is nothing, fool. To which the fool replies, then tis like the breath of an unfeed lawyer. You gave me nothing for it. You didn't pay for it, so don't complain. But then he turns to Lear and says, can you make no use of nothing, Nuncle? To which Lear says, why no, boy, Nothing can be made out of nothing. What's he echoing? Yeah. He's actually echoing himself when Cordelia has, he has said to Cordelia, what can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sister's? She says nothing, and his response is, nothing will come of nothing, speak again. Now, here the actor is returned as the fool. And we're having the parallactic conversation with Lear saying to the fool, nothing can be made out of nothing, to which the fool says, prithee, tell, me, tell him so much the rent of his land comes to, he will not believe a fool. So the fool is insulting Lear. 
Lear calls him a bitter fool, and it is bitter. He's reminded of Cordelia, and then the fool's great repost to that is, dost thou know the difference, my boy, between a bitter fool and a sweet one? So now the fool is using the same my boy for Lear that Lear has used for him. Why? Well, Lear says, no lad, teach me. And the fool sings a little song. The Lord that counsel thee to give away thy land, come place him here by me. Do thou for him stand. So whoever told you to give away your land, why don't you pretend it's you, since it was you, since no one else would have told you to do that. The sweet and bitter fool will presently appear. The one in motley here, because he's wearing motley, he's wearing his fool's clothing, his, his um, fool's motley. The one in motley here, the other found out, pointing to Lear there. Lear gets it. Dost thou call me fool, boy? And the fool says, yeah, all thy other titles thou hast given away, that thou wast born with. Um, so the fact that Lear takes this from the fool that the fool trusts Lear, you could say, or knows that Lear will take this. That's a huge step in Lear's recuperation in our eyes. That the fool trusts and will say to Lear the very things that got Cordelia into so much trouble, and worse, calling Lear himself, the king, a total fool, and Lear gets it and accepts it. And we love the fool, and we start liking Lear for loving the fool, for being the only person in the play, and he is the only person in the play, who defends the fool. Kent does not like the fool. When, Lear sing, when the fool sings a song, when Kent is in the stocks, Kent looks at him and says, where didst thou learn this, fool? And the fool just looks at him, remember what he says? Not in the stocks, fool. Um, so there's no love between them. The only person who loves the fool is Lear and, and us. So Lear loves the fool, and we like Lear for loving the fool. And that's a step towards his recuperation. Okay, I am going to give you on Latte, Aristotle's Poetics, which you should read for its usefulness, both for King Lear. Shakespeare probably didn't know Aristotle, um, but nevertheless, it's a really, really useful account of drama in general, of tragedy in particular, and it's going to be useful for later reading as well. Um, so try to read that for Monday, and we will, one way or another, finish talking about King Lear on Monday. Um, have a good weekend.